morning. So good to see everyone here today. Um, before we get into the message today, uh, I think it is important for us to acknowledge and pray about what's been going on in the world uh, over the last week. As Keith mentioned earlier, um, I'm sure you all know, uh, but the Russian leader, Vladimir Putin, initiated an unprovoked invasion of an independent country, Ukraine. And this is an unjustifiable assault. Um, Putin has tried to defend his actions by claiming that the leaders of Ukraine are neo-Nazis, which is insane. President Zelensky is Jewish. He is a descendant of Holocaust survivors. Much of his family died in the Holocaust, his ancestors. But that shows you how baseless the attack is and the kind of excuse that Putin is making. Uh, many of you know Angelina and Misha. Um, Misha plays drums here sometimes. Last week he was here playing. And what's happening right now hits very close to home for them because they are from that area and they have family members that are still there. Um, I, uh, I actually just got an update from Angelina. Yesterday she told me that uh, her, uh, Misha's sister and her children made it to the Hungarian border. And um, there was a church there that is working to find shelter for women like her and their kids, um, which what an example of what the church should be, right? Um, and I, I believe in the update that Angelina just sent, she said that they're now working to uh, get them to Germany. Um, but they had a, sa a safe place to stay last night. Uh, Angelina, um, Misha's brother-in-law um, has stayed to fight in Ukraine. And Misha's father is, is staying there as well to help with the war effort. Um, Angelina's hometown has been bombed. Uh, she, she has cousins and an uncle in a, in a city that was bombed, I believe, yesterday. Um, so I, I can't imagine what this week has been like for them. I know that it's been hard for me, even though I don't personally know anyone there, but just thinking about the significance of what, what is happening and, and the seriousness of it and how sad it is. Um, now, I know that in the face of events like this, prayer can feel inadequate. Um, but prayer is, is part of what we as the church are called to do. It's not all that we're called to do, but it is part of what we're called to do. And so I just I want to invite you all to, to pray with me now. Um, sometimes I pray off the cuff, and sometimes I feel like I've got to prepare my words in advance. So I'm going to prepare, I'm going to pray with eyes open right now <laughs> because I, I, I wanted to choose my words very carefully. Let's pray. Lord, we cry out to you this morning for justice and peace. We pray that this foolish attack would end. We pray for the end of violence, for the protection of the innocent, 
We pray for courage in the face of evil. We pray for the Ukrainian people. We pray for Angelina and Misha's families, for Misha's sister and children, for his brother-in-law and his father. We pray for Angelina's uncle and cousins. Lord, be their shield and defender. Protect and guide them in remarkable ways. And be very present, Lord, to Angelina and Misha right now. We pray for the church, especially in Ukraine. Lord, may the church be your hands and feet in this situation. We thank you for churches like that one in Hungary, caring for refugees in their hour of need. May there be many, many more like them. We pray for Russian soldiers, many of whom probably don't even really want to be a part of this. Lord, we help, help them, Lord, to see this situation for what it really is. And may they desire truth and justice more than just following orders. We pray for Vladimir Putin. We pray that his heart would soften. Somehow, Lord, may he feel genuine compassion. May he feel just a smidge of the love that you feel for the Ukrainian people. And may that bring him to his knees. We pray for world leaders making decisions about how to respond to all of this. Lord, may they make decisions guided by compassion, courage, and wisdom. Lord, we long for the day when your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And we thank you for the hope we have through Jesus that one day this old order of violence and war and death will pass away. Lord, have mercy. Bring your justice. Bring your peace. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I just encourage all of us to continue keeping this in prayer. Um, pray specifically for, for Angelina and Misha's families. Um, I know uh, Angelina and Misha might be listening online right now. I, I received from Angelina uh, some encouragement to donate to something in particular, funds uh, to, to help refugees uh, from Ukraine. Um, but I don't yet know where to donate. So um, I will try to provide that as soon as I get that uh, from, from Angelina. Okay. So as Keith said, this is going to be our last day in the parables. Over the last five months, we've looked at 15 of Jesus' parables. And uh, we haven't done all of them. I think at a future time, we may go back and look at some of the ones that we missed. But we're going to start a new sermon series for the Lenten season next week. And uh, so this, this will be our last time in the parables for a while. I don't know if you're happy about that or disappointed. I have really enjoyed going through the parables. Uh, but before we conclude our series, we're going to look at three more very short parables. That is why your bulletin has this ridiculously long title. The old and new, what is it? The old, old wineskins and garments, hidden treasure, and the great pearl. Um, I think these three parables are fitting ones to end on, and I think they connect well to each other. And hopefully you will see why as we look at them together. So, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, open to Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. 
Matthew 9, starting in verse 9. Lord, please open our hearts and minds to hear from you right now. Help us to be open to whatever you want to tell us. Help us to attend to you. Uh, we're here to encounter you and to be transformed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. All right, if you're wondering, where is the parable? That's okay. I haven't read it yet. Uh, but I wanted to read all that because I think it sets us up to hear the parable and understand it. Okay? So, remember, when Jesus started his ministry, he started by saying, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. In other words... This thing that you've been waiting for, this thing that the prophets promised, I'm about to get the ball rolling with it. It's about to arrive. And what we get here are two stories of people basically saying, Jesus, if you've come to bring the kingdom of heaven, you're doing it wrong. One, because Jesus is hanging out with sinners. And two, because Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. So let, let's talk about both of those. First, hanging out with sinners. We're told that Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. And this is kind of neat, right? Because this is the Gospel of Matthew. So this is Matthew telling us what he was doing when Jesus told him to follow him. What was he doing? He was collecting taxes. He was sitting at the tax collector's booth. And that is significant because that means that the Jews would have seen him as somebody who had chosen a lifestyle of sin. Not just somebody who had messed up a little bit, but someone who had given himself over to a lifestyle of sin. Because tax collectors in those days were thought of kind of like drug dealers. That was the kind of reputation they had, because they were seen as people who profited off of an unjust system that took advantage of the Jews. Okay. And, you know, Jesus seems to agree that the tax collectors have not chosen an admirable profession because he suggests that they are sick in some way, right? And yet, he calls Matthew to follow him. When he is sitting in the tax collector's booth. So, we need to appreciate the significance of that, right? Jesus 
does not wait until we have our act together to call us to follow him. We can be right in the act of the sin, and yet he calls to us, and he says, come on, come and follow me. When you're in the sin, he doesn't turn his face from you and say, I don't want anything to do with you. He's still inviting. Come, follow. But the Pharisees don't like this about Jesus. They see him eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, and they say, how can he do that? How can he claim to be bringing the kingdom of heaven, and yet he is hanging out with people who have chosen these sinful lifestyles? And so he's confronted, and Jesus' answer to them, notice, is not, oh, there's nothing wrong with them. Jesus' answer is, it's the sick who need a doctor. And I've come to help the sick. And he says to the Pharisees, you know, this attitude you have, this attitude that says that sinners should just be disregarded and condemned, that reveals that you have not learned something critical, something so important. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What does that mean? One of the ways that the Jews expressed their devotion to God was by offering animal sacrifices, right? And sometimes sacrifices of uh, crops and that sort of thing. They would bring them to the temple, and this was an act of devotion, an expression of, of devotion. And what Jesus is saying is, you know what? That doesn't really please God. What's more important to God is that you have compassion, that you have mercy for other human beings. All the religious rituals in the world do not satisfy God if you don't have mercy in your heart for people. And the fact that you just want to write off these people as sinners and say, don't, don't hang around them, just throw them out, disregard them, that shows that you have not learned the thing that is most important here, that God desires mercy. So then there's the second example of people telling Jesus that he's doing it wrong, that he's bringing the kingdom wrong. Someone asks, why do your disciples not fast? One way that people expressed devotion in that time was by abstaining from food and drink. And actually the Pharisees would regularly fast two days out of the week. No food or drink. It's a pretty intense expression of, of devotion, right? And um, Jesus' response to their question, which is really an accusation, why aren't you doing things right? His response is to say, well, you know, when you go to a wedding, which in those days was a week-long event, you don't fast when, I, when you're at the wedding, right? You understand there's times for fasting, there's times for feasting. And it, what he's saying is, if you understood who I really am, if you, if you could wrap your head around that, you would understand Now's wedding time. So, twice, Jesus is confronted. You're doing it wrong. Twice, he defends himself. And then, he tells a parable. So here it is. He says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. 
Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Makes perfect sense, right? What is Jesus saying here? So what he's doing here is he's describing two old things that cannot mix with new things. Right? Two old things that can't mix with new things. Now, the examples he gives might not be as relatable to us today, but for his original audience, they would have been very relatable. In those days, you probably wore the same garment over and over again. You would wash it. It would shrink. It would start to get holes in it. And you knew that if you were going to patch that garment, you had to put a piece of cloth on it that was already shrunk. Right? Because that garment is done shrink shrinking. If you put a patch on it that isn't shrunk, then what's going to happen is it's going to shrink itself, and then it's going to make the tear worse. It's not actually going to do a good job of patching it up. And then similar with the wineskins. Old wineskins become brittle, and then if you put new wine in them, the wineskins burst. So, what is going on here? Again, he's saying the old cannot contain the new, right? You want to think of the old garment, the old wineskin, as the way of thinking the people who are challenging Jesus are used to. They've got this whole way of seeing the world, this whole way of understanding the kingdom of God, how God should work, how God should operate, and that's why they're confronting Jesus, and they're saying, you're doing it wrong. And Jesus is saying, the way you're thinking, it's like an old garment, it's like a like an old wineskin. And he's saying that he is like the new garment, the new wine. So what I hear Jesus saying here is something like this. I know you guys want me to do things a certain way. You have your whole system of rules and regulations, this, this whole way of seeing the world and understanding God and, and your place in the world and all that stuff, and you don't want me to challenge it. You don't want me to mess with it at all. What you really want is just for me to patch it up a little. You just want me to reinforce it. You want to keep your old garment, your old way of seeing things. But that won't work. My teaching can't just be used to patch up your old system and your old way of seeing things. My, my teaching actually messes up your way of seeing things. It tears it. It bursts it. Right? Because you don't just need your way of viewing the world to be patched up. You need to be born again. You need a paradigm shift. You need to realize that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. That's why you think I'm doing things wrong, but I'm not doing things wrong. You just don't understand. You're clinging to your old garment, your old wineskin. Just like the Pharisees, we can get attached of certain, to certain ways of seeing things, to certain ways of understanding things. And we can cling to them, right? And, you know, sometimes the way that we see things, the way we understand, is good and accurate, and it's healthy to cling to it. But sometimes it's not. And part of being a follower of Jesus is allowing Jesus to correct us, right? To change our thinking. Sometimes we have to allow him to change the way that we think about things we've thought for a very long time. 
things maybe about how we view money, how, how we view faith and how it's supposed to be practiced, how we view violence, right? Just because we've fought away a certain way for a long time doesn't mean it's true. Even if it's something we learned in church, I hate to say. Sometimes we need Jesus to give us a new garment, even in that respect. And just like the Pharisees, sometimes we just don't want Jesus to transform our thinking. We want to cling to that old garment. We want to keep using that old wineskin. We just want him to put a patch on it. This week, I, I saw this picture online of Vladimir Putin in an Orthodox church kissing an icon of Christ. And I read some articles that suggested that he's trying to frame the invasion of Ukraine as some kind of holy war. Putin has a way of understanding himself in the world that is an old wineskin. It is an old garment. It is as old as Cain killing Abel. And he wants to use Jesus and the church to patch up that garment, to reinforce it. He wants Jesus and the church to patch up his garment of Violent conquest, right? But Jesus' teaching can't be used to do that if we're paying attention. Jesus' teaching tears up that garment. It bursts that wineskin, right? Jesus said that what God really desires is mercy. Jesus said that blessed are the poor in spirit and the meek and the peacemakers, not the violent and the warmongers, Right? Putin needs a new garment. He needs a new wineskin. He needs a new way of seeing the world and understanding who God is and what his place in the world is. Now, of course, Putin is an easy target. But we all need to ask ourselves, are there old garments, old wineskins that I am clinging to that I need to let go of? Ways of understanding and seeing that are wrong, that we, I need to allow Jesus to transform. Just because I've thought it for a long time doesn't mean that Jesus agrees. We have to listen to what he actually said, right? How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel uncomfortable at all? To think that Jesus might want to transform your thinking? Well, if it does make you uncomfortable at all, I think that the next two parables that we're looking at might be helpful. So, skip ahead now to Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. 
Now, both of these parables are very similar. I think they're expressing the same basic idea, right? In both of them, you have a progression. Someone comes across something, realizes that it is of immense value, and then gives up everything in order to have it, right? Same thing in both parables. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven is like that. What does that mean, that the kingdom of heaven is like that progression there? Okay, we have to remember, right? When the Jews heard the kingdom of heaven, they weren't just thinking about somewhere you go when you die, right? They expected heaven to come to earth as Jesus prayed. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? The, to them, the kingdom of heaven was what would happen when God asserted his reign in the world, right? Right now, there's a distinction in the world between how things ought to be and how things actually are. And the kingdom of heaven was seen as the moment when that distinction ended, right? When, when the world was redeemed and healed and things were as they should be. That's the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus started his ministry, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the thing you've been waiting for, I am here to get the ball rolling. I'm here to get it started. This union of heaven and earth, that is what I'm here to do. But what Jesus did, it, it didn't match expectations. People expected that when the kingdom of heaven arrived, it would be super obvious and it would come with this you know, big political uprising, and yet Jesus said, no, 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 that's not how it works. It's more like a small seed that I'm planting, and then it will grow. It doesn't work the way you expect. Now, over the course of this series, I have made suggestions for what we should think when we hear the kingdom of heaven is like. You might remember some of the things I've said, things like, the way God works is like this, or the way God's kingdom spreads and operates is like this. Or the fundamental nature of reality is like this. You know, I've made multiple suggestions because it really is harder than we might realize to get our, our minds around this idea of the kingdom of heaven and, and what, what it meant when Jesus said that. And to give you an idea of how hard it can be, I found a definition of the kingdom of heaven from a guy named Edward Shilibix. I think that's how you say that. When you have a name like that, you've got to become a theologian. And um, Edward Shilibix defines the kingdom of heaven this way. A process, a course of events, whereby God begins to govern or to act as king or lord. An action, therefore, by which God manifests his being God in the world of men. Simple, right? Why didn't I put it that way earlier? So... That just gives you an idea of how hard it can be to really get our minds around this concept. I think that the, you know, the suggestions I've give, given do match pretty well with what that guy said, just in a, in a less precise way. But it can be hard. It can be hard to get our, our minds around it. Um. <clears throat> so, okay. What is Jesus saying with these parables? The hidden treasure in the pearl. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this progression. What Jesus is saying is something about what it is going to look like as God's process of bringing heaven to earth unfolds. 
what it is going to look like as God's process of bringing heaven to earth unfolds. What is it going to look like? Well, for one thing, not everyone is going to realize what's going on. Just like not everyone found that hidden treasure, right? There's going to be something about it that's kind of hidden to a lot of people, right? But some people are going to discover the treasure. Because some people are going to encounter Jesus, and they're, they're going to realize, oh my, this is what I have been looking for. Some people are going to look at Jesus and realize the process of heaven coming to earth has begun because this man is heaven come to earth. This man is God in the flesh. And the people who realize this are going to decide nothing is more valuable to me than knowing Jesus and following him. like that man who sells everything he has so that he can have the field that the treasure is in, or the merchant who sells everything to get that one pearl, right? Some people are going to think, Jesus is worth it all. Jesus is worth giving my life to, orienting my whole life around. Jesus is worth that. Now, I'm sure that a lot of sermons have been preached on these parables where the big idea is, are you willing to give up everything for Jesus? But I don't think that's a great question to start with, actually. I think a better question is, have we realized the value of Jesus? Did you notice that the people in these parables, they don't need to be coerced or manipulated or shamed into giving up everything, right? In fact, it says that the man who sells everything to buy the field, that he does it in his joy. Like, he's excited to get rid of everything. Why? Because he sees the value, the beauty in the treasure. It's not a sacrifice for him to get rid of all this stuff. This is the longing of his heart, right? He has seen the value. He's seen the beauty. So here is how the kingdom of heaven works. People encounter Jesus, the treasure. They learn about him. They, they, they hear his teaching. They hear about his life, death, and resurrection. And they recognize the beauty. The kingdom doesn't grow through through violence or coercion or manipulation, it grows through people discovering the beauty, seeing the value of Jesus. So the question we have to ask is, have we realized the beauty of Christ? And, you know, I hope that as we've gone through this series in the parables, that you have seen the beauty of Jesus. The beauty of the wisdom that he offers and, and the perspective that he has and the hope that, that we can find in him. And, and I hope you realize, oh, this Jesus, he is worthy of my, my admiration and my attention and my worship. And if you're not convinced of that yet, I encourage you to keep learning about him. Keep exposing yourself to Jesus and his teaching 
Keep learning. Keep growing. You know, as we looked at earlier, okay, some people don't recognize the beauty of Jesus. Why? Because they're not willing to let go of their old ways of thinking. They're not willing to let go of that old garment or, you know, that old wineskin. But what we need to do is listen to Jesus with an open heart and an open mind, willing to let go of those old ways. And as we do, we will see that the new garment that he is offering, the new wine that he's bringing, is so much better than the stuff that we often cling to. I can think of one guy who didn't recognize the value of Jesus right away. He had a way of seeing the world, a way of understanding his, his purpose and his mission. That was an old garment, an old wineskin. And he was very, very attached to it. And he was so attached to it that when he heard what the followers of Jesus were saying, he set out to destroy them. He set out to stop them. He persecuted them. He breathed out murderous threats against them. When one of them was stoned in front of him, he gave a thumbs up to it. He said, good job. And then one day, he had a vision of Jesus. And he let go of his old garment. His way of seeing things completely transformed. And he changed. And then he wrote most of the New Testament. And, and that's the Apostle Paul. He let go of his old way of seeing things. He let go of the things that he took pride in, that were his identity. And years later, he was able to say this. He said, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. All of those old garments, those old ways of seeing things, he reached a point where he was like, they're garbage now to me. What I have is so much better now. This new way of seeing the world. You know, that word garbage, that's actually a, a very tame translation of that word. Some translators say it's really a word that most people would say I shouldn't say in church. The, the King James Version says dung. Paul's perspective had been so transformed that that old identity, that old way of seeing things, he now regarded as a pile of manure. Right? Maybe you're still having a hard time seeing Christ as that valuable. And if you are, let me close with this. There's actually another way of looking at these parables. And I think it's a legitimate way to look at them. I think, I think they, they have a dual meaning. These parables don't just describe what we should be willing to do. They describe what Jesus did for us. Jesus saw value in us. And then he gave up everything to gain us. Right? Right? He said that he came to give his life as a ransom for us, to set us free. What more can you give other than your life? Right? He died on the cross for us. He regarded us as that valuable to him that he did that. 
And the Bible tells us that he didn't do it reluctantly. It says that he did it for the joy set before him. Because gaining us, in his mind, was worth it. Because he valued us that much. So Jesus is worthy of our worship, not just because he's a great teacher and he's wise and all of that, but because of the extent of his love for us. Because he treated us like that treasure in the field. All of us make a decision in our lives to give ourselves to something. Right? All of us make a decision about what we are going to value most. It could be a career. right? It could just be something as simple as pursuing our own, our own comfort. All of us make a, a decision about what to, to value ultimately. And if we have to do that, we should make the thing we value ultimately Jesus. He should be our pearl of great price because he sought us first as a pearl of great price. So he's worth it. Lord, um, we thank you for these challenging parables, Lord. They can be hard to understand. But Lord, we pray that you would illuminate them for us. Lord, help us to see the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of your kingdom, the beauty of his teaching. Lord, help us to be captured by it, to see it for what it is, to see you for who you are, Lord. If our love has grown cold, spark our hearts. Help us to see the truth. Lord, we thank you for seeking us as the pearl of great price. Thank you for treating us like the treasure in the field, even though we don't deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen.